We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. A look back at the advanced stats from week one. That's what we'll be talking about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find me on Twitter at Yards Per Gretsch. Find my Substack at bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel, the author of the Ultimate Zero RB Watch List article at Rotoviz on Tuesdays. Sean, how are you doing? Awesome. It's been a lot of fun. We got off to a, a good start with our main event teams. We got off to a good start with reality football and how fun that was uh, to watch those games on Sunday. You and I had a long Sunday night recap where you know, the most fun I've had in a long time and looking forward to week two. But before we get that far, uh, we've got some stealing signals and some zero RB watch to go through. And then when we dive deep into the advanced stats, there are always some things that pop up that maybe we didn't catch when we watched all the games originally. Yeah, I would say a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, our, our chat Sunday night was was very fun to kind of talk about our initial thoughts. I certainly need some time to kind of chew on things. Going through the process of writing stealing signals for me is that time. And it's a big reason why I do it the way that I do on a game by game basis and do it very long is I'm sort of just sort of thinking through things. Like I've had a lot of people tell me, try to you know do it quicker or, or find ways to be more actionable. The quickest way I can do it is just write everything as I'm thinking through it. It's that quote that I've said a million times that uh, I could have wrote a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. It's a, a Blaze Pascal quote, I believe his name is. That's sort of the way I approach stealing signals is like, I'm not going to take the time to analyze this and, and boil it down to the best stuff. I'm going to just start writing as I get to each game. And it's going to be a lot for you to read sometimes, but I'm going to, at the end, boil it down to the biggest signal and noise and everything else you can read you know, as as you desire. But it actually is quicker for me that way. So anyway, I, I like to go through all the games and, and build out all those takes as I'm writing, as I'm going through it. That's sort of just walking people through my research process. I know the Zero RB watch list is a little bit more focused than what I'm describing for, for stealing signals. Uh, a, a great article. You're writing half every week. Blair Andrews writing the other half. Definitely something that Rotoviz subscribers need to be reading. I have not had the opportunity here in week one, the busy first week schedule, to, to read your uh, Zero RB watch list or Blair's. And so I'm very excited to chat with you about that. Have a lot of Zero RB teams getting a lot of questions. I mean, the, I think the most frequent question I've gotten this week from people is, all right, I drafted Zero RB, now what? <laughs> like, what, what do I do? <laughs> like, how much money do I put on Elijah Mitchell? What do I do? 
how do I respond? I, I guess we should start with the 49ers. We got we got Elijah Mitchell. Uh, you wrote the AFC this week, right? So Blair wrote the NFC. I did. Yeah, Blair's got you covered with the NFC. If uh, anybody who's not familiar with Blair, I think that he is the sharpest mind in fantasy. We talk about him on the show from time to time. He does the wrong read for the site. And Ben, one of the things that jumps out here in this game is that even though these running backs scored a lot of points, a lot of it did come as fantasy points over expectation, right? So we get the 8.8 EP for Mitchell, the 3.5 for Hasty. Obviously, almost all of these touches did go through Mitchell, but that 38-yard touchdown run makes his day look a little bit bigger than it might have otherwise been. Are you concerned at all for this offense that in a game where they did score so many points that the running backs maybe didn't have the EP numbers that we would look for? Are you concerned with Trey Sermon coming back? One of the things that I've been talking with listeners about, talking with the Rotoviz guys about, trying to figure out how we want to bid on our teams, is that even though they really spun it as, okay, these guys are ahead of Sermon there are reasons to believe that he will still have a big role here, right? When we had Jamie Eisenberg on the show, he talked about how the buzz in camp about Sermon was similar to that of Michael Thomas at the point where you know, they visited some of these things. There were at least moments in camp where they were excited about the guy that they drafted first. Now, Elijah Mitchell, you have this profile that gets, you know, at, at least before Sunday, right? Gets swept under the rug a little bit. And then, you know, everybody's talking about it, but this is someone who ran a 43840. I talk a lot, we talk a lot about actually liking the smaller guys. Don't pay so much extra for the big backs that you give away, all of the value that might have been there. We do see that burst on the touchdown run. Uh, we know that the 49ers are an offense that's going to create points over expectation. That was one of the things that was so striking over the last couple of years is that you have these massive FPOE numbers for Raheem Mostert for Jeff Wilson. You actually had negative numbers for Tevin Coleman, which obviously a bad sign as he tries to replicate some of that magic with the Jets, something that obviously didn't happen in week one. Uh, how should we balance these kind of competing elements of Sermon with the higher draft slot, having some buzz, and then someone where it really looks like Kyle Shanahan wanted to send a message, maybe even more is glad that he sent the message now since they won the game easily and Mostert is no longer there. I mean, if they think that this guy is going to be the foundation back for the team, now they need him. But with Mitchell looking good in week one, we're, we're right back into a committee situation, probably. And then how much do you bid on Hasty as a guy who, if Sermon really is that far into the doghouse, and anything happens to Mitchell, then suddenly we have another guy here who could be relevant. And if you have to pay 100% for Mitchell, it might be something where trying to make sure you get hasty in a bunch of leagues. As we saw last week, things change in a hurry. If you have 100% of KJ Hamler, you know, maybe it's not as big of a dagger for you when Judy goes down. If you have 100% of hasty, maybe whatever happens next, you're prepared for. Yeah, I think that's a smart thing through it. You kind of <laughs> hit on all the notes i the, the thing about mitchell that i really like is that his profile overlaps with mostert so much uh i was going to mention your point about the sort of the efficiency created in this rushing attack and in this offense generally the yak I and mean, it's a very well-designed offense it's one that i've struggled with through my high value touch uh stat because i i care so much about the team high value touches how much the which is very similar to the ep that you're talking about they're, they're gonna kind of look at the same sort of concepts uh, Mitchell had no high value touches, no receptions, no carries inside the 10 yard line. 
Hasty got the one carry inside the 10, and I believe he also had a reception. So he had the uh, the, the couple high-value touches, which was, I think, notable to me. He's the guy that was in the offense last year of their backs that they'll have up. He's the only one that has played with the team before last week, obviously, because they'll have Sermon and, and Mitchell alongside him. And so uh, I think there's some scenarios where, I mean, we saw with like Ramondre Stevenson fumbled right away with New England and got benched. And there's some scenarios where things can go haywire for Mitchell. But from a skill set perspective, now that Mostert's gone, they want that type of explosive running back. They, they found so many ways to utilize Mostert, really valued him after they found him a couple of years, basically continued to just basically accelerate his usage beyond sort of what was expected from the, from the get-go and then, you know, paid him and then made sure he was going to be a part of their offense. He's really struggled to stay healthy, but you see the Elijah Mitchell pick and you think, okay, well, he's the the next in line for the Raheem Mostert sort of idea in the offense. And so I think that makes a ton of sense and is a reason to be very aggressive on Mitchell, but also I am going to be putting bids on, on hasty. Like you said, some, some feeler bids and, not small ones because we don't. The, the important thing here is like this backfield does generate points, even though it doesn't generate points in the ways that we t- kind of look at it. It is kind of funny that we started with this because we're talking about sort of the ways that we like to look at stats. And, and in this case, it's one where I'm like, yeah, I don't even really care about the stats I look at because we have this big sample that they still generate running back production, even despite the high value touches, even despite the EP. And so you want pieces of the backfield. I'm excited to, to potentially grab. Both of those backs, obviously, I don't think Sermon should be dropped. There's some people that were initially talking about that, but I think it would be just a huge mistake. And I even think, like, you know, I'm not going out of my way to get on Johnson, but the, what we know now is that their whole plan for this year has been upended. They decided not to activate Trey Sermon, and then Raheem Mostert's gone for the year. It could be Sermon as the lead this, this week. It could be Mitchell. We don't really know. What we do know is somebody's going to wind up being productive, and and there, it's very very uncertain. There's a lot of production up for grabs, right? And so that's very much worth targeting. All you have to do is look at those huge gains from Jeff Wilson in the past to know that if you can have part of this attack that you want it, then there's so many directions. He's another one that I, in, in deep leagues, I've put small bids on. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Just to stash it. Another guy who was a surprise inactive in week one was Zach Moss. Perhaps a little bit of a similar thing there, but also this element where Singletary, the better fit for what they want to do offensively, even though that did fail. And you have a situation where Moss, maybe not the guy that they're really using for special teams. So that factors in for some of the franchises when they do their running back actives and inactives on Sundays. Uh, sometimes that can be overstated whether or not a running back is inactive because if he wasn't projected for a huge role, it doesn't mean that he's like collapsed all the way down or tumbled all the way down the depth chart. It just means that the number of touches he was going to have in the offense didn't justify being active with a special team situation. So we look at the Buffalo Bills and they have a bad week one and their team is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum where we don't expect them to create a lot of points at the running back position. And yet Devin Singletary did have 13.8 EP in week one. Number for you, unfortunately, he underperformed as a receiver, which is a quick way to give some of the points back. But I wanted to reference some of the things that Singletary actually did in this game, right? We talked about him coming in as someone who actually had great peripherals the last couple of years, even last year when uh, people were very down on him. He had a very good evasion percentage. He's one of these guys who can make people miss he had 11 carries, had 72 yards, creates a couple of big plays. 
He actually ranked ninth in week one in evasion percentage. And the guys ahead of him are sort of the big names that you would sort of expect. We had Austin Eckler. We had Joe Mixon, which we'll have to kind of talk about because I obviously had some negative notes about him uh, on the Sunday night show. But Kareem Hunt, Nick Chubb, Dalvin Cook, all of these guys that we would expect to be up there in the evasion percentage, but then Singletary again. So this is a game where he played well from a reality perspective. It's a game where I think a lot of people are going to lose confidence because he didn't actually score well for fantasy. And they're going to say, well, if he couldn't score well when Zach Moss was out, what's he going to do when Moss is active? Because Moss is going to be active. But I actually think that there are some positives to this game that might be getting sucked under the rug. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think he had the best uh, role for a Bills back, or at least a better a better role than, than anything we saw from the Bills back last year. I mean, almost any given week. He had uh, four high-value touches, a couple, a couple green zone touches. One was a, a reception there, which probably had – you know, solid EP and, and maybe explains why he under, underperformed as a receiver a little bit. This idea that like, you know, he only scored two touchdowns last year and doesn't have the possibility of scoring. He, he did get some, some usage in close and, you know, the Steelers are a good defense. They played good defense. The fact that he got some touches in there, uh, you know, in, in near the, the goal line, I think was very promising. The fact that he, you know, got five targets was promising. There's some elements to this where like, yeah, I don't think he's going to be, you know, th- th- this offense is going to be one that generates a lot of running back value, but it was big, I think, in week one to see more than we typically saw and to see Singletary get all of it. Matt Breida didn't get any high value touches. We don't know what it'll be like when Moss plays, like you said, but Singletary's role was was good. He just, you know, wasn't necessarily amazing in that role. So. It was uh, certainly promising for him. You mentioned the Mixon thing. What what note do you have there? I'm curious. Well, uh, Mixon has the 34 touches. He led the NFL in team opportunity share. He led the running back position, right? So that splits out the opportunity in terms of the whole team. We know that we wanted the Bengals to pass more. They didn't. They went to Mixon. He has 55% opportunity. The next two guys, Antonio Gibson, 52%, Christian McCaffrey, 50%. Uh, for me, and we're going to talk a little bit about this for the third show. We're going to have a lot of guests, but we did want to go through some of the things that we're doing still here in this first week of the season. We'll be looking a little bit at, at rest of season rankings in the next show. That's always uh, a reader favorite, a listener favorite. But in terms of some of these adv- advanced stats, I was joking about how on the key fourth and one play in this game where the Bengals didn't convert and they then turn the ball over the game turns around they go into a shell the vikings almost recover to win the game so that was kind of the key play mixon didn't make it but overall he looked pretty decent now one of the interesting things here is that he actually had 2.7 yards before contact only 1.6 after contact but he also had this really high evasion percentage 33 percent tied for with kareem hunt for the second best in the nfl in week one so that's broken tackles missed tackles And it's kind of interesting. One of the things that I talk about a lot with Joe Mixon is this element where there are guys out there who will make people miss, who will break tackles, and then don't go forward. And Mixon is kind of one of those guys. The other guy who was very much in that position in week one was someone else who's very relevant for zero RB drafters, and that's James Conner. Conner was kind of in this situation where – his was also sort of a subtly good performance where Chase Edmonds looked fantastic. People who drafted him, I think, are going to be very happy that they did. 
But Connor also in the top six for evasion percentage, he had this massive stiff arm in the game. Uh, I think we kind of talked about on Sunday night where he would have had a touchdown, except they false started when they were like on the one foot line. Uh, but Connor also, so it's, it's interesting to see a couple of guys look very good in evasion percentage and yet not generate yards after contact. Mixon only at 1.6, James Connor down at 1.1. And so you're trying to figure out, well, how did James Connor take these 16 attempts and actually you know, break a bunch of tackles, do all these things that were very impressive, but only end up with 3.3 yards per attempt? Well, after he broke the tackles, he did not go forward. Right. So he was sort of swarmed under by the Titans even after breaking the tackles. He was hit at the line 56% of the time, one of the higher numbers in the NFL, uh, sort of fifth worst in week one. I think with what we saw in terms of Edwards, Edmonds carries and what we saw with the overall Arizona offense, I don't think that's going to be the case for him necessarily going forward. So if we're talking about kind of guys with some stealth upside, people you might target in trades, people who if you played and didn't get the points in week one and you're panicking a little bit, maybe you're still okay with James Conner as well. I'm, I'm loving the advanced stats. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard you talk like this. <laughs> you're you're, you're a, an advanced stats grinder now. No, Connor, uh, one thing I was really encouraged about was that they got down into the red zone. I believe the first time Edmonds got a carry down there from like the nine-yard line, but not long after, Connor was in uh, for three consecutive plays from the five-yard line. They were all passes. He later got a carry from the eight, gained six yards, was back in there from the two, and it was the Kyler Murray bootleg touchdown, which which was James Connor getting the the fake up the middle. So the Cardinals did a little bit, did a good job, I would say, of being a little bit more a little bit more variable in the things that they did down by the goal line last year. They used a lot of Kenyon Drake right up the middle. I think that was smart. It was it was a, a good thing to see from them from a team perspective. I question whether that was one of those things that we saw in week one because they made it a focus and they'll fall back into bad habits down down the line because we did see Kenyon Drake get just uh, a, a ton. He was either second or third. Him and, and Josh Jacobs were second and third behind Dalvin Cook and carries from the uh, the three-yard line and in last year. I, I do question whether Kingsbury will just kind of go to that stuff down the line. And from what I saw, from especially from a snap perspective, but not from necessarily a high-value touch or green zone touch perspective, Connor looks like he's go- going to play that role. He played from a snap pers- perspective. He played uh, the short side of the snaps. He was more in the Edmonds range from last year. Edmonds was up in the Drake range from last year, but we're talking about, you know, 10 percentage points different. We're talking about basically a 60, 50% split because they're on the field together sometimes too. Connor playing half the snaps and Edmonds being up closer to 60%. That's fine. I mean, that's fine for Connor's role, especially if he's going to get the greens on touches. It was, it wasn't great to see that he, didn't do as much in the passing game, but and Edmonds certainly had the had the edge there. But I was I was encouraged by Connor's what I think his role will be going forward, certainly as well. Colin Kelly here, the executive producer of the Road of His Radio Podcast Network and co-host of the Road of His Overtime Podcast, along with the phenomenal Sean Siegel. The wait is over, the NFL season is here, and there's no better time than the present to sign up for a Road of His NFL Pass. You'll get access to all of our content, all of our tools, 
everything you need to help you for that in-season success. As a loyal podcast listener, you can get yourself a 10% discount to a Rotoviz NFL Pass just by adding the code RVRADIO2021 at checkout. Go to rotaviz.com forward slash podcast for more information. Let's go get those championships. I hope you enjoy the podcast. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Then another running back situation that was doesn't jump out as being a big storyline of week one, but could be a big storyline as we go forward is what Clyde Edwards-Alaire did with the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, we talked a little bit on Sunday about how they're going to need to dump the ball off to him in some of these situations where Patrick Mahomes is scrambled. And I mean, you don't want Mahomes scrambling. You want the ball in Edwards of their hands. You don't want Patrick Mahomes hit and you do want the running back. And that's the reason that they drafted him. If he's not going to drop the ball off to CH in those situations, then I mean, this is complete wasted first round pick. But when we talked about Edwards Alaire and why he might be kind of the rare dead zone and kind of depending on how you look at it. I mean, there were definitely lots of drafts where Edwards are still what, kind of in the second round, but the rare dead zone back who could be potentially the anchor back for you or the hero back, the legendary back that uh, Pat wants us to draft. And the reason that I thought he could do that is that Andy Reid's historical tendency has been to be very concentrated with the running back touches, including the all important targets. We saw that with Brian Westbrook, we saw that with LaShawn McCoy. And one of the things I really emphasized in the article about CH is that LaShawn McCoy actually played in an offense that was pretty similar to the Patrick Mahomes offense. Now, that wasn't really the case for Brian Westbrook. Back in those days, they actually did have a bigger pie to their running backs. And so, you know, Westbrook could lose some touches perhaps and still have the overall volume that you needed. McCoy couldn't lose those touches, but he didn't. And that's one of the reasons why he was such a star. We know that during the chief's tenure for reed he hasn't been able to develop that kind of back and the reason that they drafted edwards alaire was to be their Lashawn mccoy to be their brian westbrook and then last year with some of the injuries that he suffered he really wasn't able to do it 
but it seemed like this year he would take the step forward. Now, in week one, he again looked like he looked last season, not that dynamic, but they had 18 opportunities to the running backs. Edwards are there, 17 of them. And so there are going to be some games where maybe they have some more touches for him. There are going to be some games where his target numbers jump. If he is the guy and the only guy, we didn't see Jarek McKinnon have one attempt here for Daryl Williams. I think that upside is there in an offense, again, that's going to score a ton of points. Some of those points will go to the running backs. You know, Damian Williams scored a lot of points in not quite the same role, but a role, I mean, Edwards Lair role should be better. Now, we did see on uh, Sunday also that Damian Williams, maybe some of they shouldn't have cut. He looked very good for the Bears. But where are you at with Edwards Lair now that we've seen in week one both the really positive upside with him, but then also some of the red flags. So both the things we were excited about and the things we were worried about, I think both of those sort of transpired in this first game with the Chiefs. Well, we talked about these offenses that are very pass heavy that can kind of forget about their backs production wise. That was really the only concern here for, for CEH. I mean, I agree with everything you said, the, the heavy use, the, the, the high percentage of running back touches, all of that was very, very positive. The 70% snap share I wrote in some signals I took optimistically. I don't think you can look at what he did and say that he's much different than like Ezekiel Elliott. I think people in like rest of season rankings, we're going to talk more about that in our next show, but People are going to still have like Zeke ahead of him, but but Zeke was actually giving up some touches that are important because they were like scheming stuff for Pollard. CEH didn't. They had sort of the same issue with their production in the sense that they didn't really get used as much because their offenses were passing more. You know, certainly going forward, maybe you can make a case that Zeke is more of a, a touchdown threat and some of those types of things. But, you know, guys like him, guys like... Who are the other ones we know? Najee Harris, this happened to in week one, played 100% of the snaps, but his team just basically didn't need to use the running back as much or just wasn't very good overall. There's a handful of these backs. I think we saw it from the, from Tampa Bay as well, where Fournette ended up with a big role that I don't expect to, to stick, but you saw how the running back production just wasn't there. That was sort of the only issue with CEH in week one as well, and I, I completely agree with that. And I don't know essentially why we would be – significantly higher on on somebody like a, a Zeke than we would on CEH, which we've already sort of discussed. I think we discussed on Sunday, you know, that we don't see Zeke necessarily as even a, a first round pick. Another situation that was really interesting, and actually when you were giving that introduction, I thought you might go here, was Jacksonville. One of my big notes from Ceiling Signals was that I got the impression watching that game that James Robinson is going to play the Travis Etienne role, the role that we thought Etienne would play. He, late in the game, they went very passive. Late in the game was split out, was running slants, getting targeted on slants. He had six targets. He ran routes on 64% of dropbacks. Carlos Hyde got more touches, and I think a lot of the discussion we've been seeing is that, oh, this is really bad for James Robinson. Barely got any rush attempts. Hyde had more rush attempts. I actually took this positively. I was, I was already pretty concerned about James Robinson, so it depends on where you start, what your expectations were. I took this fairly positively for James Robinson in the sense that they look terrible, Jacksonville. I mean, you don't necessarily want to be targeting them. And anyone who took Robinson was higher on him than I was in the first place. But as far as like DFS or, or, or various things, if you can buy low on him, he's going to catch some passes, I think. I mean, the fact that he was split up, the fact that he was getting targets down the field, the fact that he ran routes on more than 60% of dropbacks. And then if something were to happen to Hyde, now you're talking about maybe consolidating those two roles. We always liked the pass catcher in a split. He played more snaps overall. He did still get carries, even though Hyde was sort of the the grounded out, grinded out kind of you know uh, run heavy guy. The, the, the comparison you had this offseason was like the Kamara Ingram days, where 
It looked like Etienne would be the Camara and Robinson would be the Ingram. Now it looks like Robinson's going to be the Camara role and Hyde is the, the Ingram, although in an offense that may generate orders of magnitude, fewer, uh, you know, uh, running back points overall or running back, you know, production or, or, or high value touches, however you want to look at it, expected points. But yeah, I was actually fairly optimistic about Robinson. I left that game thinking this dude's going to probably catch 50 passes. And you're exactly right in terms of how these profiles play out. It is kind of this question of you know, just how few total points do they generate? And Robinson hurt his own case with a, a pretty bad drop. He underperformed his receiving workload by more than four fantasy points. If he has those four points, then people are looking at him differently this week. You mentioned that you know Hyde can have these low-value touches and it won't necessarily hurt him. I mean, he needs just more overall work. The running backs need more work. Urban Meyer talked about that. Uh, they've got to be better to get the running backs more involved in a traditional manner. But Robinson's expected points almost double high, 12.8 to 6.9, and more than 10 receiving EP, which we, we talk all the time about. If you can get into that 10 range in receiving EP, then you're going to be a fantasy weapon. I mean, there's almost no way that you don't, right? So the, the part that is frustrating, I think, for people is that we saw Robinson look so good last year. I mean, he averaged 15.7 expected points, which is putting you up there, you know, not as a first round pick. And you know, perhaps not even as a second round pick when we consider how good the players in that range are. But I mean, that's an elite level for the running back. And then he averaged and he added 2.4 fantasy points over expectation on top of that. So James Robinson was the star. The fact that they went out and drafted a first round pick frustrating. The fact that they have someone like Carlos Hyde in there to, you know, ruin some of these touches, that's frustrating. At the same time, you know, Robinson, a good player. I mean, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if he's more in this 12.5 to 13 EP range. And if, you know, if Hyde breaks some plays, Robinson drops some passes, then you can see it get worse. I guess that's my fear is it could get worse from here, actually, based on yeah, this I mean, game not going very well. Not even so much that the current profile is that bad. Yeah, the 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 key point when we talk about what what he's getting now and what he did last year is that last year in his 14 games, I think there was – I don't have the exact number in front of me, but there was like five rush attempts uh, for all of the other Jacksonville running backs that weren't James Robinson. That was our, like, I was already baking that into my expectation. That was not going to happen this year. He had the most ridiculous running back, whatever you want to call it, opportunity share, right? Concentration of touches. He had everything going his way in that regard. And then he also caught a lot of passes last year, most of which was because they trailed. They were a one 15 team. And they guarded Minshew, a quarterback who was frequently dumping off to him late in games. He would catch a lot of balls late in games in these just sort of dump off scenarios. I had some concerns also about that part of it because I didn't know if Trevor Lawrence would be different. You know, different quarterbacks are going to are going to dump off to running backs at different rates is essentially something that I believe pretty strongly. And so I had these big red flag concerns about Robinson. What we saw is a completely different role. He's not the dominant early down rush attempt, low value touch guy that he was last year. The role that he had last year was just because he was a three-down back, he's also adding all these receptions, sort of like the you know the Leonard Fournette role before him in Jacksonville. We didn't see a lot like that. We saw them actually using him as a receiver more proactively, though. And so then what ends up happening, it's, it's, it's kind of semantics, but what ends up happening is I think there's more stability in what his receiving role will be the rest of this season, uh, regardless sort of of whether they're good or not, that he should get targets. He should be in a position to continue to run routes based on the way that they were using him based on what we were sort of expecting they, how they would use etn 
I, I, I do think he's not likely to, to have a, a ton of rush. Like his rush times are going to be a lot lower than last year because they, they are going to use Hyde and it's going to be split and all of that. He's in a, just a completely different role. Like you got to think about him as a completely different back than last year, in my opinion. Are you picking up Hyde in deep leagues where you need just some touches? I guess. Yeah. I mean, he, he got carries, <laughs> but the, they're low value touches. I mean, when you say it the way you did, like if I, if I just need somebody who's playing football, <laughs> you know, that I do have some deep leagues where I went so zero RB that just having somebody who will get eight or 10 touches is, is usable. Otherwise I'm almost completely out. You don't want a low value touch guy. He might, he might have the edge in the green zone. He might not, we don't really know yet. You know, Jackson will score their TDs from, from distance for the most part until a very late four yard touchdown pass when they were I mean, there was five seconds left. They were just kind of pushing things late, but their earlier TDs were from distance. They didn't run a lot of offense in close. And so we didn't, uh, we didn't get like a, a good indication of who might play in close. It could be Hyde, And so you might have some TD equity and potential, but uh, it could also be Robinson. And so you might just wind up with, you know, even the fact that I had had two catches this week, I think was a little bit fluky, especially considering Robinson only had three. They had a, a much wider gap in targets, but I don't, I don't think Hyde's going to be like a, a, a big producer. I think he's going to be that really boring six, eight point guy. So speaking of uh, zero RB, you, you said you had people asking about that. One of the guys that we talked about some, he was on the zero RB countdown. He was someone who, uh, especially after, Cam Newton was released, became more interesting. James White, one of the most valuable players in terms of production to cost in 2018, 2019. Last year, obviously had some things off the field that kept him from being quite the same guy and then some things on the field that definitely kept that from happening. Week one, Mac Jones looked, I think, sensational. I, I was expecting him to be good, and then he was even better than that. James White, six, seven targets, six receptions, 49 yards. Damian Harris actually got three targets for and two receptions, which was interesting to see. Now, we have the fumble situation with Stevenson and Harris, which could throw a wrench into what they do with those two guys and maybe even J.J. Taylor. Harris looked phenomenal until the fumble. He has 16.7 EP. Definitely playable if he can get points in that range, but James White with the 11.2 EP and then outperformed it a little bit. We have the 9.4 receiving EP, which is what you want if you have James White. A white someone who now, I mean, Ben, I went into the season with some optimism and I think that he could end up being a league winner for people the way he was in 2018. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, he, he ran routes on 40% of dropbacks. I think that number could have been a little bit higher in terms of, you know, what would have really excited me. The optimistic note for me broadly in this game was that they threw so much, right? Like they were, they were willing to, to pass the ball at a much higher rate than, I mean, I, I expected them to come out passing quite a bit with, with Mac Jones under center, but, or I should say quite a bit more. Obviously we knew that they were going to be more run focused some of it's going to be game script, all that stuff. But it was a close game, and they turned Mac Jones loose. He threw 39 times. He's not going to scramble. We knew that. But, like, th this, you know, a big thing I, I mentioned last year was the Patriots were second to last, in, uh, excuse me, in the offseason, was the Patriots were second to last in pass volume, uh, pass attempts, right? One of the only team, one of only two teams under 450 attempts, one of the, like, seven or so that have been under 450 attempts in the last 
uh, like seven years or something since that 2014 rule change that I referenced from time to time. And I was saying, look, they're going to pass more just because Mac Jones is going to play eventually. And then Cam Newton got cut. It's like, oh, hey, Mac Jones is going to play week one. They're going to pass more. But they do have a rookie quarterback. They're going to be a run-focused team. What we saw in week one was like, they might actually be an above-average pass volume team. They might actually throw a decent amount. And that, I think, changed things quite a bit in my mind. And it's positive for White, to your point. Do you have a, a take or a even like a gut feel about how fantasy managers should be dealing with the fumble situation? I, I mean, it seems like David, Damian Harris was so good. You've got to give him at least another chance. I mean, you can't go away from your best players after one game, even if it's a sort of a backbreaking loss. I think that we're, I mean, the, the, the direct backup to Harris also fumbled and got benched for it in, in Stevenson. I think we might see more of Stevenson and he kind of gets another chance. I also think that we're likely to see yeah, Harris to your point. Like, I don't think we're going to see him actually lose substantial work. It's, it's a tough one. We don't really know what Belichick's going to do, but I, I, I agree. I mean, I, that was my initial thought. The comments were sort of confusing me, but hearing, hearing your opinion is sort of where I was at initially. Like, look, Harris looked really good. It was a bad fumble. It essentially cost them the game. They never got the ball back. They were in scoring range down one. They had a chance to, or at least it cost them a chance at the game. They had a chance certainly to at least kick a field goal and take the lead, potentially score a touchdown. Bad time to lose a football, but he did look very good. I thought he was looking like running running the ball very well, looking very good throughout that game. And he ran routes on 25% of dropbacks, not that far behind White. I don't know how much of that was because Stevenson essentially got benched. But if Harris can even be in the like 25%, 30% route range, I think that's a pretty positive sign for him. He caught a couple passes. So maybe if people are freaking out, cutting him or wanting to, wanting to trade him, he might be a target. And I wouldn't expect Stevenson's value in dynasty leagues to shift that much based on one game where he gets benched early for uh, you know, a mistake that the Patriots don't put up with. But given what we saw with the tendencies of the offense, given what we saw with Mac Jones, knowing that Stevenson long-term is the guy who can do both things and could actually be a, a breakout star in this offense, I would actually be putting out some feelers this week to see if you can pry Stevenson away from fantasy managers who maybe need to do a little bit something else. If you could be the second guy in a trade where maybe you trade headliners and don't care that much, it's a little bit of a wash for you there. I would make that move because I think that the situation now is setting up for a different scenario, maybe over the second half of 2021, certainly for 2022 than what we've seen over the last three or four years where running back has been hard to play in New England. I think that he could be a star for you. Then we've gone over a lot of these running backs. We have given some insight into how we're playing the zero RB situations. Give me a couple of your biggest takeaways at wide receiver. What should people who are like on the verge of, of subscribing to ceiling signals, what should they be looking for uh, in terms of week one? We got to go through all of this data here. What jumped out to you that maybe was a little bit of a surprise you didn't notice uh, as you were watching, but then was the most important receiver based piece of information or advanced data from week one? Yeah, I always tell people in past years, like that's the question everyone wants to ask me when I'm like a guest on a show. It's like, what, what was the most important thing? It's like, I just wrote like 10,000 words. I can't pick out what the most important thing was, but I, I will say so Mike, all 10,000 words. Just do it quickly. quickly. Yeah. Real, real quickly. Uh, Mike Williams was really impressive. I have talked a lot about his targets per run being poor. 
his inability, you know, you, you've referenced his inability to, to separate, and, and we were concerned about him. The fact, you know, there, there was this obvious kind of target hole behind Keenan Allen. Who's going who's gonna to be that guy? And, and Mike Williams was the most likely one, but I had my, my doubts. There was obvious upside there, too. I mean, there's a lot of people listening to this who are like, yeah, it was always going to be Mike Williams. Well, I think there was reasons to be a little bit skeptical. There was a wide range here. What we saw in week one, he drew targets at a high rate. He got 12 targets. More importantly, his ADOT was a lot lower, and that's a good example of something that I didn't necessarily notice on first watch, but 9.8 ADOT, he was drawing targets in this intermediate range. He caught a, I think it was like a three-yard touchdown, so they were you know, using him in close as a, as a big-body target in the end zone, so he gets these valuable looks both in terms of um, the end zone and, and, and really the other valuable look is downfield. We know he's going to get some downfield looks. Like He's always had a very high ADOT, the fact actually that he got these intermediate looks was very, very positive. I, I kind of compared it stealing signals to Will Fuller in week one last year. That was something that sort of all expected with DeAndre Hopkins not being there. I don't think people really bought into as much that it was possible. And it happened right away in week one with Will Fuller and you needed to, to act quick. I think what I saw from Mike Williams in week one was the type of game that I was hoping he would have a few of throughout the entire season. And that would be a very positive sign for his end of season line. The fact that he already did it and basically did everything, got the target volume, in, in large numbers, got the intermediate volume, got the end zone shot, and was you know efficient on all of it, was immediately for me something that was like, okay, that's, I mean, he could actually have like a dud next week. And I would still say, look, I mean, if you had if you had flipped those and he had a dud in week one and then had that in week two and, and told me all this before the season, I'd say, look, the fact that he had one of these types of games in the first two weeks is a positive start for him. So yeah, I, I'm moving him up definitely and feeling very optimistic. And this was something that they had foreshadowed but it was still a little bit difficult to believe in because we do hear some of these things about players changing their role and it doesn't happen. And then he didn't have a great camp by all reports, but, but now we've seen him do it. And having the depth of target drop can actually be very, very positive for some of these vertical receivers. Yeah. It's them more targets, which is the key. Yeah. Cause they're already going to get the air yards. It's just getting some cheap receptions basically that, that really rounds out their statistical profile. And that's what we've been looking for from DJ Moore is the same kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to definitely get to him, but yeah, fantastic usage. Uh, jet motion tip pass where he got tackled by the line of scrimmage, got a rush attempt, got downfield targets. We talked about him a little bit on Sunday night, but he got a punt return as well that I, I had. I don't think I mentioned on Sunday night. I kind of forgotten about, but I remembered. I remember watching the game. I was like, what the hell are they doing? Do not get him hurt on a punt return. At the same time, we talk in college when, when when coaches put guys back there for returns. That shows up positively. It means they want to get the ball in the guy's hands. And for more, that's what we were hoping that this coaching staff would go back in the offseason and say, we need to get the ball in his hands more. We don't need to just run him down the field. So the fact that they did put him back there on a punt return and the fact that they gave him a rush attempt and a jet motion tip pass, like everything was there. DJ Moore's going to explode. He's going to explode. I feel it very strongly. And he didn't have that great of a game. So a perfect guy to go try to trade for right now. I, I mean, and he did have a drop and a, and a missed Arnold target that we talked about on Sunday as well. His game could have been better. I mean, there's just so many elements to his game that could have been better. I do think the, the Christian McCaffrey concerns are valid as well that we talked about on Sunday. Yeah, McCaffrey looked fantastic. I, I didn't necessarily mean to get you off of the off of the Chargers that quickly. They were an interesting team from another perspective as well, which is that you had talked about being concerned that if Jalen Guyton is the third receiver, then this is going to be a weird offense. He's not someone who has really drawn targets in the past, but he was actually involved in this game. Uh, the contrast between Guyton and Josh Palmer, did you have a takeaway in terms of how 
fantasy managers should be playing that if they're in a deep league, especially a dynasty league. Is it a concern for Palmer at all? We've mentioned how he doesn't really have the profile to transition well to the NFL, but he was—he actually was one of the stars of their camp. Does Guyton playing back ahead of him and drawing targets in week one kind of neutralize that to an effect? I mean, maybe. Um, that, that, that was not my takeaway. If it's yours, I think that's very interesting. My, my takeaway was like um, – you know, Palmer's the rookie, didn't get a lot of time in week one. His role could grow. I, I don't really believe in Jalen Guyton a ton. Uh, you know, he did see five targets, but ran a ton of, uh, a ton of, a ton of routes and wasn't necessarily as productive as you'd like to see from all of that, you know, wind sprinting that he did. I, I don't, I don't buy into to Jalen Guyton really at all. I mean, he could wind up being good. He's going to have some explosive games, but I don't, I don't see how he comes back from like a literally like a 9% targets per out run last year and is, is consistently good. I just think that's really, really hard for him. The fact that he was ahead of Palmer, yeah, negative note for Palmer, but I think that could shift as well throughout time. So I, I didn't have a strong take. One that I thought was very interesting, another one that was alluded to, this is where I was going to go before you went to more, was uh, Mikol Hardman, which we kind of joked that he, you know, there's not a lot to his profile. You can get the same thing at, with K.J. Hamler late. You probably would rather have K.J. Hamler at this point. K.J. Hamler looked absolutely unguardable. I do think the notes on Hardman were positive. There was all this talk that he was going to be the number two receiver. We were expecting that sort of. At the same time, he ran routes on 83% of dropbacks. He played alongside Tyree Kill more than he ever has. He sort of quietly played more last year than he did in year one, even though we di he didn't become an 80% routes kind of guy like the fans community may have wanted. And, and we were all, so, you know, I was in on him a lot. We were hoping that there was this potential for him to play a ton. And it looked last year again like, yeah, his best path to a real role is if Tyreek Hill were to miss time, he's sort of a handcuff. In this game, he played a lot more than Demarcus Robinson. He was out there running a ton of routes, was not productive, did not earn targets, might just be bad. But the fact is the playing time was there. He's been very efficient in the past. If he's going to be on the field this much, he, I mean, I was a little bit concerned that it seemed like he was mostly only running shallow routes. And, and certainly the efficiency was there when he was running more deep routes in his rookie year when Tyreek was out at times. But he's out there, and, and the fact that he's out there that much, it is another step forward from year two. He's now essentially a full-time player. He looked like it in week one. I know everyone's like, quit my quit, quit trying to make Mikko Hardman a thing. I don't think that's really fair. The guy was a 21-year-old rookie, then he played at 22. He, he took a step forward, wasn't as good uh, from an efficiency standpoint. There are questions about town, all those things. But now he's 23. Like It wouldn't be that insane to see a year three sort of breakout, so to speak. I don't know if it'll be a monster breakout, but certainly a guy with his explosiveness in a Pat Mahomes offense running 83% of the routes is intriguing to me. I'm not going to, like, it's not the same as last year or the year before. It is different this time around. It's interesting to hear you say that because it's kind of a different take than your take on Guyton, for example, with you know him being out there and running and and mostly not drawing the targets. I mean, one of the things that we've seen from him is that he creates the big plays but he hasn't been a target guy at any point. And I'm disconcerted a little bit about week one where he does run that many routes and doesn't draw targets. It was also kind of one of these things where, and, and you don't want to be um, needlessly unkind to anybody and, and certainly not someone who, you know, the high profile guys don't need any more criticism than they're already getting. There was a situation where he catches a pass and it's a second long takes it for you know eight or nine yards and sort of needlessly goes out of bounds short of the first down. So then they've got to run one of their kind of schemed third and short plays, which it was successful. They continued on, 
but you've got to give up one of the plays that you really should be saving for a situation where your wide receiver didn't just jog out of bounds. They had a situation where he couldn't find his helmet for a punt. Yeah, that was bad. He, he does a lot of that stuff. We talked about in the Super Bowl going back to last year. We talked about this in the offseason. Jumping offside on a on a, a, a third and four or whatever where they're kicking a field goal, extends a drive, Tampa goes on to score a touchdown. It was one of the key plays in that Super Bowl. He makes some dumb plays. The fact that he didn't have his helmet, like that was – I'm not trying to say I'm all in on Nicole Hardman, but the question that you brought about Guyton and Hardman, here's the way I would describe that. Guyton ran 581 routes last year. That's a ton. He had a 9% target per out run. That is incredibly, incredibly low, literally 9.0%. I don't see almost any that are sub 10%. Hardman last year, year one, 293 routes. And some of that he played a lot more when Hill was hurt and was only at 12.3% targets per out run, huge yards per target that year. 12.3, not good. Last year, his routes did tick up, even though he was never in like a full-time role in those games where Hill was out like he was in 2019. So when you look at the games where Hill was in, his routes per game had definitely increased. He was up to 341. He added about 50 routes in, in 2020 compared to 2019 overall. But his routes per game were uh, an even bigger increase. But his targets per outrun last year, 18.2%. Pretty strong number. Not amazing, but especially for an explosive downfield guy, pretty strong to see him at 18% targets per outrun. That's the key difference is that we have never seen him run 581 routes like Guyton did. And I don't know if he can maintain that, but even if he's at like 15 targets per out run, 15%, uh, if he's running a ton of routes finally, I mean, we already saw that from Guyton last year and he was very, very low in targets per out run. So I think that's a that's a pretty substantial difference because at first when you brought that comparison up, I was like, yeah, that's actually a really good comparison. But then I started thinking as you were talking, I was like, this is the difference that I would, I would drive home is that Hardman has shown a little bit of targets per out run potential and he has the explosiveness, you know, potential on a per play basis. We know he's going to create some big plays and it, it, even just a few more makes him relevant, especially maybe if you were someone who went running back, running back, running back, and then loaded up on a lot of these just kind of shock guys, you know, he could be somebody who makes a little bit of a difference for you. And the other thing that we continue to see is that Byron Pringle, Demarcus Robinson, those guys just cannot make an impact. And so when you're looking at this team, it really is Hill and Kelsey for them to do what they need to do, a third guy has to take a step forward. If Hardman's being given the chance and we know the other guys can't do it, then even just the opportunity, like you're saying, the opportunity and the speed, we have a little bit of the opportunity there. Someone else who is extremely fast and played a ton in week one and somehow couldn't do anything until the very end, we have some Henry Ruggs. Uh, should we be panicking when you see that – I don't know that I've ever seen a quarterback as in love with a player as Derek Carr is with Darren Waller. I mean, Darren Waller looks like he's <laughs> the all-time targets record. I mean, the only reason he didn't have like a 70% target share is this game got out of hand late from a play volume perspective. It was very exciting. When I say get out, got out of hand, um, it, it can throw off some of these play volume numbers. I think we talked about it with the Lions a little on Sunday. That was a big note. So the Lions ran 84 plays because they had all this late game production. Happened, happened with the Raiders. Game goes to overtime. You get these extra possessions. You get all this extra play volume. The only reason Waller wasn't at just a ridiculous target share was because of all that sort of frantic passing late. Uh, and, and Carr ends up throwing like 57 passes. That's when Ruggs did a little bit. That's when Brian Edwards caught all four of his passes. They were on the the second tele, or excuse me, the last drive in, in regulation and then two more in overtime. But Waller prior to that, I completely agree, was just – he looked like, it, it, I mean, it, I'm sure most people watch Monday Night Football, but 
it's week one, but man, that first half, every single play, every single play. I'm so excited. I have him on, on a main event where we, we, you know, we built with, and this is not what I do with you, Sean, but we built in the, cause you know, we never got a chance to draft the Waller. We wanted him at every time at our ninth and 10th picks, but I had a fifth pick where we took Darren Waller and, I, yeah, that was a huge takeaway for me too. It was like, man, he's he might break the tight the tight end target record, like you were just saying. Yeah, so it was exciting to see the big time tight ends. Uh, right now, if you were to go back and do drafts, uh, we talked about Alvin Kamara moving up to the 102. I'm maybe a little bit more skeptical of that after the first game, but excited to talk with you about that in our next episode. How we would draft it, I think it would be uh, Christian McCaffrey, obviously number one, then the two tight ends, then. Uh, Tyreek Hill, you know, where do we draft Kamara? Where do we draft Cook? Cook looked very, very good. And so certainly you're not going to be moving him down the board very much. But we'll talk about updated rest of season rankings. Guys are moving up, guys are moving down. Uh, that'll do it for today's episode of Stealing Bananas. We had a blast with you as always. If you're looking for all of these great stats that Ben has been giving you, make sure you sign up for Stealing Signals, the best newsletter and really a must read if you want to be competitive and more importantly, dominant in your fantasy leagues. If you enjoyed some of the advanced stats that I was providing today, uh, subscribe to Rotoviz, go to the advanced stat explorer. It's got all kinds of really cool stuff. You know, you'll get addicted to that and, and spend hours kind of sifting through what the running backs did, what the wide receivers did there. Uh, if you want to do that at a little bit of a discount, you can use the code RVRadio2021 at checkout and save 10%. Uh, if you could leave us a rating review on your favorite podcast app and follow the feed, you'll get the show a little bit earlier there Monday mornings when that comes out on Sunday nights. Uh, the first one was a, a big hit. And again, we thank you guys for that. It's the community that's making it uh, much more even than Ben and me. So we appreciate your time. We've had fun with you. We'll see you again soon. Until then.